Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. When you hear the phrase, in the beginning, what book of scripture comes to mind? Those are the first three words of the book of Genesis, but they are also the first three words in the gospel according to John. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. John wants us to know that Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. We know from modern revelation that Jesus Christ's work began even before the creation of the world. He played a key role in the pre-mortal councils in heaven. In Abraham chapter 3, verses 22 through 27, we read, The Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good. And he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. And there stood one among them that was like unto God. And he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is space there. And we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And we will prove them herewith, to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered, Like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. I hope that thinking about these verses from Abraham and the first three words from John help us see more clearly the meaning of one of Christ's titles, Alpha and Omega. Those were the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am Alpha and Omega is like saying I am A and Z, the beginning and the end. The book of Revelation calls Jesus the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So as the world was created from the very beginning of the world, Jesus was the sacrificial Lamb. This teaches us that Christ's atonement was not a backup plan. It was the plan. It wasn't like Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and then God said, oh no, we we better figure something out. This was the plan from the beginning. And knowing that, for me, is a helpful connection point with Jesus Christ. He's been there in the past, he'll be there in the future, and he is here with us now. Knowing that Christ was there in the very beginning is a powerful reminder that Jesus is not in a short-term relationship with us. It's not like he just recently walked into your life. He's been with you, aware of you for thousands of years. This provides helpful reassurance when we're experiencing challenges. Think about one of your long-term relationships. If you have a small blip in your relationship with that person, it's hard, but it doesn't end the relationship because you're in it for the long term and so are they. That's how Jesus is. He was with us in the beginning. He's known us forever. He's not giving up on us now. King Benjamin taught that Jesus would be called the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. Under the direction of his Father, Jesus Christ helped to create the earth and everything on it. In the first part of this episode, we'll talk about three lessons we can learn from Jesus Christ and the creation. We will look at what Jesus did in Genesis as the creator and then see how this relates to his later teachings. Let's start by looking at four passages, one from the creation, one from the premortal Jehovah, another from Christ's mortal ministry, and finally, one from modern revelation. 
On the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in that he had rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So Jesus sets the example of resting on the Sabbath day. A couple thousand years in the future, the premortal Christ said to Ezekiel, Hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. How we treat the Sabbath sends a signal of how we feel about Jesus. In Matthew 12, we read, There was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Now, moving forward to modern times, we read, And that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer, and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. For verily, this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors, and to pay thy devotions unto the Most High. I think it's impressive to see that from his example in the creation of the world throughout the Old Testament, his teachings in the New Testament, and into the modern day, there's a consistent emphasis on the Sabbath. I want to pause for a moment and look at a framework from Elder David A. Bednar. If you're interested in learning more about this framework, you can explore it more with the resources available on the course website. But to be brief, the idea is that there are doctrines, principles, and applications. Doctrines are core eternal truths like the Godhead or the Atonement of Jesus Christ. They are relatively few in number. Growing out of these doctrines are principles, which are doctrinally based guidelines for the exercise of agency. These aren't specific rules, but they are broad guidelines that can help guide our decisions. Finally, growing out of principles are specific applications. These are actual behaviors or practices. Here's an example. We might say that a doctrine is that the Holy Ghost is a member of the Godhead. Several different principles could grow out of that one doctrine. For example, as I always remember Jesus Christ, I will have the Holy Spirit as my constant companion. Or, keeping the word of wisdom will help me be more in tune with the Holy Spirit. Many different applications could grow out of each of these principles. For example, thinking of the principle of the word of wisdom, one application could be, I will track what I eat to make sure that I'm eating healthy. Another might be, I will avoid the temptation to drink alcohol by not going to bars. Note that neither of those two applications is a commandment for the church members generally. Applications are often things that an individual decides to do. Applications are often personal. And an application that works for you might not be the same application that another person will have. Let's think about what we just learned about the creation in terms of doctrine, principle, and application. We have a doctrine that under God's direction, Jesus Christ created the earth. Growing out of that doctrine are several principles, one of which is, the Sabbath is a day for me to demonstrate my devotion to God. Take a moment to think about your own life. What is a specific application for you that grows out of this principle? Remember, applications are personal. One person might say, I feel like I should change the media I participate in on Sunday. Another person might feel, I should spend more time in scripture study on Sunday. Another person could say, I won't do homework on Sunday. None of these applications are rules for the whole church. The Spirit can give us personal guidance on how we could apply the principle, the Sabbath is a day for me to demonstrate to God my devotion to Him. How do you feel you should apply this principle? Let's look at another principle we can learn from Christ in the creation. 
In Moses chapter 3, we read, I, the Lord, created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. All things were before created, but spiritually were they created and made according to my word. This highlights a pattern we see in many different areas. Before we have a building, we have a blueprint. Before we have the cake, we have a recipe. Before we have the dress, we have a sewing pattern. Before God and Christ created the world physically, they created it spiritually. Thus, a principle might be, in my life, I need to have a mental or spiritual creation for what I do, which will guide the physical creation. A powerful principle is that God will help us as we work to spiritually create our lives, so to speak. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 states, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Let me share a personal story from my life. My freshman year was amazing. About 20 guys from my freshman ward kept in touch on our missions, and we all moved into the same apartment complex after our missions. Although we loved each other, as the semester got busy, we didn't connect with each other as much as we might have hoped. At the end of fall semester, in December, I was walking home from school and ran into one of my freshman friends named Ethan. He lived in my complex, but I never saw him, so I said, Ethan, let's spend some time together right now. He said, John, I'd love to spend time with you, but I'm on my way to a leadership club meeting. Why don't you come with me to the leadership club and we can hang out afterwards? I didn't really care about leadership, but I wanted to spend time with Ethan, so I went with him to the club meeting. This was a student-run club, and the student who was running the club that day was beautiful. She just radiated the spirit, and I could feel a connection between me and her. I don't think she felt anything, but I knew it was real because as we walked out of the room, I didn't say a word, but Ethan looked at me and said, John, I can feel a connection between you and her. I replied, I feel it too. So I said, Ethan, we'll have to hang out another day. And I walked back into the room and pretended to be really interested in leadership. I signed up for the club. I got the leadership book. I couldn't quite get the courage to ask her for her phone number, but thanks to BYU's online directory, I called her up the next day and asked her out. She said no. I waited a few more days, asked her out again. This time, she said yes. Well, to make a long story short, we went on a magical first date. It was amazing. But that night, I was very uneasy because I realized that I was not good enough for her. She was doing all these incredible things in her life. She was in the leadership club, had a job, was serving in the community. I watched a lot of television. There was a big gap between us. And as I prayed about it, I received the clear impression that I needed to make myself a better person, that I was not good enough for her. I had just kind of been bumbling along, not doing anything bad, but not really living up to my potential. I felt like I needed to tap into the vision of what God wanted me to become. I came across some ideas similar to what Elder Richard G. Scott said. You need a retreat of peace and quiet, where periodically you can ponder and let the Lord establish the direction in your life. Sometime soon, you may benefit from taking this personal inventory. What are my highest priorities of life? How do I use my discretionary time? Is some of it consistently used for my highest priorities? Is there anything I know I should not be doing? If so, I will stop now. There are a lot of great nuggets in this quote, but for me, the part that really stood out was to let the Lord establish the direction in your life. The idea that just like Jesus spiritually created the earth and then physically created it, he could help me spiritually create, so to speak, my next semester. He could give me ideas that would help me become the kind of person that he wanted me to be. Because it was Christmas break, it was the perfect time for a retreat. I didn't go to an exotic location, just my bedroom, but I read my patriarchal blessing, read general conference talks, and really tried to tap into the spirit and create a vision of the kind of person I was going to become over the next four months. 
the specific vision that I came up for myself, that's not really the important thing because we all have our own inspiration. But for our purposes, I had a plan for how I was going to become a better person. Over the next four months, I worked to turn myself into the kind of person I had envisioned myself becoming. And I really did become a better person. Probably not as good as she was, but I got to the point where we went on a second date and then a year after that we got married and now we're living happily ever after. God wants to give us revelation. And some of that revelation has to do with our lives and the kind of people we will become. I believe that, at least in some cases, we don't get the revelation we need because we don't ask for it. He will help us gain a vision of the person he wants us to be. Now, I've just shared a specific application of the principle, Jesus Christ created things spiritually before they were created physically. Maybe I've taken a little bit of liberty with this application, but it's one that's been meaningful to me personally. And it might be helpful for you to connect with Heavenly Father, to spiritually create the next few months of your life. But again, applications are personal. Some of you might be thinking, this is the worst application I've ever heard and I will never do that. No problem. There are other ways to apply this principle. For example, Elder Bednar talked about using the power of spiritually creating our day through morning prayers. And there are many other applications that are possible. Let's turn to a third principle from the creation by looking at three verses, one from the creation, one from the mortal Christ, and one from Paul, who is teaching about Jesus. In the account of the creation, we read, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. During Christ's life, the Pharisees came to him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now let's pause for a moment on this question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause. I want to point out two things. First, generally speaking, it was not legal for a woman to divorce her husband. That wasn't even a question. The question was, under what conditions can a man divorce his wife? Second, this was a question that was debated among Jews at the time of Christ. Some groups believed that it was okay for a man to divorce his wife for basically any reason. She burns dinner, you don't like the food, you write her a little note saying you're out, and then it's fine to divorce. Other Jews were much less permissive about divorce. That's why people were coming to Jesus about this topic. They were asking him to weigh in on a current issue. Continuing, we read, Jesus answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Notice that Jesus' response about divorce directly connects to his and Heavenly Father's creating male and female and God joining the two in marriage. The Pharisees then said to Jesus, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, in which Moses allowed for divorce. The Pharisees are asking Jesus, Why does Moses allow divorce? And you're saying, No divorce. Jesus saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. The Savior's teachings here are very clear. The only valid reason for a man to divorce his wife is because of sexual infidelity. If a man divorces his wife and remarries, he's committing adultery. Let's pause for a moment and make a couple of clarifications. First, I acknowledge this is a sensitive subject. 
I bring it up because it's something that Jesus talks about frequently. He forbids divorce twice in Matthew. Similar versions of these teachings appear in Mark and Luke. It was such a common teaching of Jesus that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians specifically cites Jesus as prohibiting divorce. Jesus also teaches this principle when he visits the Nephites. This is not a one-off teaching. It's something he repeatedly says. Second, to be clear, the church today does not strictly adhere to this teaching. President Dallin H. Oaks said, In the temples of the Lord, couples are married for all eternity. But some marriages do not progress toward that ideal. Because of the hardness of our hearts, the Lord does not currently enforce the consequences of the celestial standard. He permits divorced persons to marry again without the stain of immorality specified in the higher law. Unless a divorced member has committed serious transgressions, he or she can become eligible for a temple recommend under the same worthiness standards that apply to other members. Just like Moses allowed divorce in his day, President Oaks is saying that the Lord allows it in our day. I'll say a little bit more about this in just a moment, but first, let's read our third passage from Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Note that this verse is directed to husbands, telling them to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? He died for it. He sacrificed everything. We see this same idea in the temple ceiling. If you've been in a ceiling room before, you've probably noticed that the altar is placed at the center of the room. For millennia, altars have pointed to the death of Jesus Christ. For example, Abraham built an altar and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar which was a similitude of God in his only begotten son. Elder Bruce C. Hafen described a time when he sealed a couple in the temple. He said, I invited them to the altar, and as the groom took the bride by the hand, I realized that they were about to place upon that altar of sacrifice their own broken hearts and contrite spirits, in offering of themselves to each other and to God, in emulation of Christ's sacrifice for them. Picture the scene described by Elder Hafen. The husband and wife are on opposite sides of the altar. The bride and groom take each other by the hand. Whether one thinks of the altar or the hands clasped together on the altar, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is literally at the center of the sealing ordinance. When a man and wife are sealed together in the temple, their marriage is no longer just about a man and a woman. The Savior is a central third party. In a sense, their marriage is nailed to the cross of Christ. Let's step back and look at these verses collectively. Again, I acknowledge this is a sensitive topic. Many of us have had loved ones who have been divorced, or perhaps we have been divorced ourselves. Depending on the circumstances, maybe that divorce has been a blessing, or it may have been a very painful process. What do Jesus' teachings mean for us today? Clearly, Jesus is not saying you should stay in an abusive marriage. In context, Jesus is talking about men who were divorcing their wives for trivial or selfish reasons. Jesus says, don't do that. A man might say, well, my spouse doesn't seem as attractive to me as she used to be. She has some annoying habits. Jesus says that is not a valid reason for divorce. Paul taught that Jesus didn't just fall out of love with us and leave us. On the contrary, he sacrificed his life for us. And that's how husbands should be. As Timothy and Kathy Keller, Christian leaders, write, On the cross, Jesus did not look down on us with a heart full of admiration and affection. He felt no chemistry, but he gave himself. He put our needs ahead of his own. He sacrificed for us. The Bible tells spouses not only to imitate the quality and manner of Christ's love, but also the goal of it. 
Jesus died not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. He died, Paul says, to make us holy. Paradoxically, this means Paul is urging spouses to help their mates love Jesus more than them. It's a paradox, but not a contradiction. The simple fact is that only if I love Jesus more than my wife will I be able to serve her needs ahead of my own. Only if my emotional tank is filled with love from God will I be able to be patient, faithful, tender, and open with my wife when things are not going well in life or in the relationship. And the more joy I get from my relationship with Christ, the more I can share that joy with my wife and family. As we conclude our discussion of this principle, I want to be clear that I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that somebody who gets divorced is a bad person or anything like that. Clearly, as President Oaks taught, in our modern context, there are justifiable reasons for divorce, and there will be times the divorce is the best option. I also want to highlight that in the resurrection, in the millennium, Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Some of us are in situations that are terribly unfair. If someone has broken a covenant, that doesn't ruin your eternal salvation. God will compensate for all the unfairness we experience in this life. In our own marriages, or looking to future marriages, a principle from the creation is that marriage between a man and a woman is essential to God's eternal plan. Each one of us might have a different set of applications. Somebody who is single might decide to start doing things today to strengthen a future marriage, or stop doing things that will weaken a future marriage. Perhaps some of us are married and we might find a completely different set of applications. Take a moment to consider how you could apply the principle, marriage between man and woman is essential to God's eternal plan. Today I picked three principles from the creation, but there are other ones we could have selected. For example, Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf has powerfully taught the principle that we should follow Christ's example and create things. That principle has its own set of applications, like learning how to paint or creating a musical composition. I hope this lens of doctrines, principles, and application is a useful approach for understanding the scriptures and applying them to your lives. Now, before we conclude, let's cover about 2,000 years of history in 10 minutes. I want to highlight how Jesus has been involved in the world from the beginning. We've been talking about Christ and his role in the creation. He was there with Adam and Eve at the fall. He was there at the flood. We read, The Lord ordained Noah after his own order and commanded him that he should go forth and declare his gospel unto the children of men. Jesus was also at the Tower of Babel and spoke to the brother of Jared. He said to him, Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. I am Jesus Christ. Jesus was also there with Abraham. As I was recently studying about Abraham, I noticed something about their relationship. There was a famine, and in Abraham chapter 2, verse 17, we read, I, Abraham, built an altar, and made an offering unto the Lord, and prayed that the famine might be turned away. I offered sacrifice there in the plains of Morah, and called on the Lord devoutly. This is after Jesus had visited Abraham and given him the Abrahamic covenant, so they've got a tight relationship. You would think that the famine would stop, right? Well, the famine did not stop. We read, There was a continuation of the famine in the land, and I concluded to go down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine became very grievous. That's a special scriptural nugget to see that even Abraham, who's amazing, has a close connection with God, prays about a real problem, and his prayer is not answered in the way he wants, in the timeline he wants. But Abraham doesn't say, and it came to pass, I quit trying and I don't believe in God anymore. No, he was still faithful. He said, okay, you're not giving me the answer I was hoping for, but I'm going to keep moving forward. What a great lesson for us. The main reason I want to talk about Christ and Abraham is the Abrahamic covenant. 
Imagine a concept so powerful it could completely change your life. That's what we find in the Abrahamic Covenant. The course readings that you can find on the course website have a lot of detailed information, but to briefly summarize, the Abrahamic Covenant consists of some significant blessings and responsibilities Jesus gave to Abraham and his descendants. In Genesis 17, we read, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, My covenant is with thee. Thou shalt be a father of many nations. I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Here, Jesus promises Abraham a great posterity and a promised land. In Abraham 2, we read that Jesus said to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee above measure, and make thy name great among all the nations, and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, that in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. Another part of the Abrahamic covenant is the priesthood. But perhaps even more than the blessings promised to Abraham and his descendants are the responsibilities they were given. Jesus gave Abraham and his posterity the responsibility to bear this ministry unto all nations, so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Nephi tells us that this will primarily happen through the restoration of the gospel in the latter days. In other words, you and I have an important role to play in the Abrahamic covenant as we help take the gospel to all the nations of the earth. Our responsibility is emphasized. It appears in the Old Testament, the New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Every book of scripture talks about our responsibility to take the gospel to all the world. To summarize the Abrahamic covenant, we might say that Jesus promised Abraham and his descendants posterity, promised land, and priesthood. Jesus gave Abraham and his posterity the responsibility to bear this ministry unto all nations so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. This will happen through the restoration of the gospel in the latter days. We have an important role to play in taking the gospel to all the nations of the earth. In a previous episode, we talked about the Scripture Citation Index app, or the website scriptures.byu.edu, that helps us see how prophets can help us understand scriptures. One of the places that the Abrahamic Covenant appears is in Genesis 22. So I went to the Scripture Citation Index to see different places where passages about the Abrahamic Covenant were quoted. I found this quote from Elder David A. Bednar. He said, We are the seed of Abraham. We were foreordained in the premortal existence and born into mortality to fulfill the covenant and promise God made to Abraham. You and I, today and always, are to bless all peoples in all the nations of the earth. That is who we are, and that is why we are here, today and always. First and foremost, we are spiritual beings. We are children of God and the seed of Abraham. This quote contains a life-changing idea. Our lives are very different if we believe our key identity is not found in our careers or hobbies, but rather in who we are as children of God and descendants of Abraham. We are part of a covenant that's been going on for thousands of years. If we were to take the doctrine, principle, and application approach that we've been discussing, one principle that grows out of the doctrine of the Abrahamic covenant is a principle that the core purpose for why we're here is to share the gospel. I was born to do that. You were born to do that. So if that's a principle, then what are possible applications? For some of us, that might mean I'm going to go on a full-time mission, 
or I'm going to find natural and normal ways to share the gospel in my everyday conversations. Here's another application. Suppose I wake up on Sunday and think, I don't really feel like going to church today. If the doctrine of the Abrahamic covenant is deep in my heart, I'll realize that the issue is not, do I feel like going to church today? It's, I'm part of a covenant that's been going on for 4,000 years to gather Israel, and Israel is gathering today at sacrament meeting. I'm a part of that. Not only am I going to go, I'm going to call a friend and bring a friend with me. It totally changes the way I look at things. Well, I've given a few application ideas, and you could no doubt come up with many more. As we've talked today about Jesus Christ as the creator and covenant maker, I hope that some of the principles have seemed relevant to you personally. As we ponder these principles, I hope that the Holy Ghost will teach us specific applications and that we'll act on the promptings we've received and as a result, come closer to Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.